Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I hope you've been getting out there on your bikes and riding and touring and bikepacking and you're making the most of the summer. For me, recently, in the wake of the BTXL failure, I headed to Mont Tremblant and I was doing some rerouting and scouting on part of my route out there. That's part of the um, the the longest distance of the Canadian Shield bikepacking route, and I had to had to reroute a few things because some sections of trails were still littered with trees from the big storm, and then I had some sections that were on ATV trails, which I came to realize you're not allowed to bike on in Quebec, so. Um, had to make some reroutes. I had previously ridden a lot of the trails, but didn't really care if I was allowed to or not. But then kind of figured that if it's an official route, I should probably uh, keep it pretty legit and uh, not go riding on it. If it's just somewhere I'm riding by myself and want to do it, then do it. But if it's something I publish, then probably I should keep it as much on proper routes and roads as possible. So yeah, that's that. The Grand Depart went off without a hitch. We had a few riders come out. It wasn't too many. It was uh, three people. And yeah, it was really, really cool just to spend some time and get to, to know them and interact. And we rode together for about 60K that day. And then I turned around and headed home. And then they all carried on in their merry, long, merry ways. Andrew, who was riding the Canadian Shield 1300, had to unfortunately pull the plug. He was dealing with some back issues and knee pain that I think... Knee pain can often happen as a result of back issues because you're compensating even without knowing it. That's something I've noticed in my life. And so if you're having back pains and stuff, it's really, really easy for it to, to progress and become a pain somewhere else. So, yeah. And that could also be a result of chafing, which he said he started to get on his brook seat. And we had actually a big discussion about it earlier that day. You know, I was talking about how it's hard to find a saddle that works for you. It's really hard. And... In all my experiences, I have a B-17 Imperial, and it's been the best so far. I haven't tried the non-Imperial one, so maybe that should be my next purchase. Um, it's been the best so far. It does give a little bit of, I don't know, whatever. Something happens to me. I get these like subcutaneous pimples that are quite painful when you're riding on them, but it's not so bad, and um, usually it happens after quite a few hundred kilometers, so... It's not something I get when it's a, you know, one or two day, uh, like a one day ride or a few hundred kilometers, but something on the longer rides. For the new build, my Chiru divider, I've been using a Brooks Cambrium C17 and it hasn't been working for me at all. Like I've been getting some mad chafing from that um, right down the center, which is not very good because then you can't find a comfortable spot to sit. 
And so I think it's time. Um, that's what Andrew did. He sold his right after he said, oh, this is not for me and sold it. And that's probably the right move. It's not working for me. Um, I would like to try an Ergon seat. I've heard those are really good. Um, people have said fantastic things about them. And I thought maybe that could be my next best move. So we shall see. I know that Jonas Dykeman, the uh, adventurer that I'm interviewing in today's episode, he uses an Ergon saddle and he's had one since about a year before they came out for sale. So he was on an early demo model and he said, it's fantastic. He says he really likes it. And, you know, when he, if he can ride three, four months every day, a couple hundred kilometers, um, it's probably a pretty good seat. So, yeah, that's my goal. Try one of those out. Um, yeah, what else? What else is new? Um, in the near future, my family and I, were going to go sailing with my dad in the north of the Lake Erie Great Lake in the North Channel and uh, spend some time out there on the water. And then we're going to come back and we're gonna, planning to do Petit Train du Nord from Montreal to St. Uh, Mont Laurier, sorry. Um, my thoughts, just to keep things simple, will be to book some campsites and ride maybe 50 to 60 or so kilometers a day with the baby and the dog and everything. And then I can leave them there and I could, then I could have a nice fast ride back to my car and pick up the SUV and trailer wherever I left it and then boot it up to where they are. And then we can camp for the night and then the next day just do it again. So that's kind of the hope I'm going with, or maybe even stay some places for a couple nights just to, to have a rest. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. And then maybe a trip east to the Gaspake Peninsula. I have some routes out there I really want to ride um, that I've plotted. And they're up on the website, but I put them in black and non-tested yet. And uh, so if anybody else is out there and wants to ride, let me know. Uh, maybe we can manage to meet up at the same time, do some riding together, do some testing, and uh, kind of go like that. And um, yeah, otherwise, that is it. So on to the podcast. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you will be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring and bike packing. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys, and through both mine and my guest experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike touring or bikepacking and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. If you're already an experienced bike tourer or bikepacker, I hope that my guest stories allow you to relive some of your own experiences and give you a good laugh or two along the way. In the meantime, enjoy the show and keep on pedaling. Jonas, welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be back. Um, so yeah, for, for those that don't know anything about Jonas, uh, please do go back through the previous podcasts we've recorded over the past couple of years. I will definitely add links in the show notes so you can link directly to them and, uh, kind of get his whole story there. But, uh, Jonas, why don't you just give us a rundown of some of the previous challenges you have taken on prior to this last big one? Uh, sure. So I was basically doing adventures all my life um, and was doing cycling races, uh, road racing when I was uh, a bit younger. 
And then during university, I had a lot of uh, free time and no money, but in order to see the world. So I thought, why not doing it on a bicycle? And I, I cycled once around the world. And then after that, after university, I, I got this idea of, of combining the, the racing from the, from my childhood with the adventure of, of bike touring. And uh, I wanted to do a, ultra long distance world records, always uh, unsupported, um, crossing continents as fast as I could. And uh, my first one was in 2017, uh, the world record for cycling across uh, Europe and Asia from the Atlantic and Portugal to the Russian Pacific. And then I, I did a Pan America record the year after, uh, 23,000 kilometers from Alaska to, uh, to Tierra del Fuego in Argentina in 97 days. And then Cape to Cape, 18,000 kilometers from northern Norway to Cape Towns of Africa. It was my last big cycling adventure. And after that, I got the dream of, of doing something something else, a, a bit bigger. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of unbelievable because I remember talking to you last time and you're like, well, I have something big in the works, but I can't tell you what it is. And I'm thinking to myself, what could be bigger? I mean, you've done the Cape to Cape, you've done the... the Pan America solo, you've done east to west, and I'm like, well, there it is. So you decided to do a triathlon around the world, and how did you come up with this idea? Why 120 Ironmans? Is there something mythical or magical about that number? And uh, yeah, let us know. Well, I got this idea when I, I was doing the Cape to Cape. So I always have um, a lot of time to think when I'm on my adventures, yeah. and I, I return with a lot of stupid ideas. And... Um, I was in a Sahara when I got the idea, and uh, the reason is I've been in more than 100 countries on bicycle, and I, I barely got out of my comfort zone anymore because I simply have, have seen so much, and where life begins beyond your comfort zone, so, so I was ready for, for a new challenge, and at that point I was a very good cyclist and also a very good runner. And um, I didn't, well, I, I didn't die swimming, I, I was a horrible swimmer to be honest but uh, perfect conditions for doing a triathlon. And as an adventure, I always wanted to go around the world. So this is how the idea came and no one has ever done it before, which is also a pretty good reason to do it. And the number of 120 Ironmans, that simply has to do with ge geography. Okay. Because um, when I, I looked for possibilities, how I can go around the world with like having at least the running leg and the swimming leg and having it in, ah. in, across the continent. That looks, that's what I wanted to do is it would be bad to well, run across half the US and then I continue cycling. That doesn't, uh, didn't feel right. And um, especially in terms of the swimming, you cannot swim against current. So the um, geography kind of determines a bit the route. And my original plan was to run across the US and I figured out, okay, that's pretty much a bit more than 5,000 kilometers. And then I planned a route where I can swim and cycle across Europe and Asia that um, is the equivalent to that. Because mm. I thought, of course, if I do a very long triathlon around the world, it has to be a multiply of the, of yeah. the Ironman distance. And um, it's kind of, I came out at 120. That's amazing. And, um, yeah, I don't know anybody who's done 120 Ironmans except for you. So uh, I, I actually thought, and this was my crazy mind going with math games. I'm like, oh, I get it. An Ironman has three disciplines. So 120 times three is 360. There's 360 degrees in a circle, which is around the world. 
<laughs> that was my mind. <laughs> this is a very interesting thought, actually. I, I have never heard this before. I never thought about it, but but you're right. This is uh, interesting. You could steal it. <laughs> Maybe a little late for that. Um, so, what was the what was the plan for this uh, massive endeavor? Where were you going to start? Where were you going to? Um, I mean, I, we say there's three legs, but there was a little bit more biking involved. Um, so, what was the general outline of the plan? Um, yes, yeah, so so the swimming and um, the running leg I could do in in one continuous go, but because of geography and the cycling, I had to to break up a bit. So I started in in Munich and cycled across the Alps to the Croatian coast, which is it's just like seven hundred kilometers, uh, no big deal. And uh, then I I swam for four hundred and sixty kilometers along the the Croatian shore to Dubrovnik. And also swim packing, which is a new and very interesting discipline. So I was going unsupported. We know this from bike packing, of course. But um, well, I was swim packing, pulling um, a raft with my with my gear uh, behind me, and uh, then yeah, go shopping and sleep on the beach somewhere with that. And from the Provnik, I jumped back on the bike and cycled across uh, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Russia, all the way to Vladivostok on the Pacific. And then I wanted to originally run from San Francisco to New York, but um, I have been in Sudan and in Iran on uh, past adventures. So in the US, I'm on some kind of terrorist list and they didn't let me in. And um, Canada actually didn't let me in either because of, um, not because of Iran, they have no problem with that, but because of COVID. So um, I changed my route into Mexico and I, I run from Tijuana to Cancun. 5,000 kilometers across the country and then finally another 4,000 K of easy cycling mm. from Portugal back to Germany. Nice. And what kind of training um, had to go into preparing for this? I mean, we know you're a biker, so that, you know, that's always been there. I, I think you weren't too worried about your cycling legs, but uh, what else? What did you have to do to prepare for the swim and the, the run? It took me about a year to prepare for this, um, especially a lot of logistics preparation. What is possible? Where is, is it possible? And um, from the running, from the, from the cycling, I didn't really train anything. It's just I continued doing what I anyway do. Um, the, the big challenge for me was swimming in particular and also running with a trailer, which is something I have never done before. So for the running, I, I went to the next car dealer and I got myself two car tires that I put around my, my waist and with that I was running up the mountains to, to simulate the trailer. And uh, for the swimming, well, I went to swim in lakes and rivers and um, also I built myself this, um, this raft and um, I went to train with the raft because it's something very different, mm -hmm. swimming with raft. Yeah, because it would constantly pull against you as you're swimming, right? Every time you stroke, it would have this uh, drag effect, right? Exactly, especially if you have, um, when you're in the sea, when there are waves from the front. So if every small little wave that, that comes from the front, when the when the raft goes over it, I have like a something pulling me back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and... What about the uh, the cold? You got to tell us more about this cold weather testing room, or well, I don't even know what it was, but uh, I know you were testing some gear and equipment and yourself maybe for Siberian winter. Uh, tell us about this. Oh, yes. So um, I made a plan for this project before the pandemic, but um, and I wanted to cycle from Turkey to Yavan, Pakistan, India, Southeast Asia, all 
pretty warm countries. But I started while the pandemic was already there and I had different scenarios of border closures. But the most likely was likely one was that the southern route with so many closed borders is not going to work. Mm-hmm. And then I would have to go into Russia because it's one country that is so big. If I get in there, then yeah. I'm on the Pacific. And to train for, for Russian winter conditions, I contacted um, the German train company. They do have uh, in northern Germany um, um, like a, a, lab, a lab, it's like a 25 meter long a hall okay. where they put in their trains to test them on extreme conditions. That's wild. And <laughs> I could go in there, but this is pretty awesome. Yeah, I could go in there with my, um, on a home trainer. And in, inside they had minus 24 degrees Celsius. And they had a snow machine and a wind turbine and uh, they could produce ice and everything. So we simulated a proper Siberian winter storm in there. And for me, it was things about, first of all, of course, myself and, um, and uh, the clothes, but also mm-hmm. um, things on the bike, like um, what is with the power bank and, and the Wahoo and everything. Is this still working in these conditions? Or tubeless, does tubeless at minus 25 degrees still work? And uh, all the, everything where you have loop makes huge problems, the chain and everything. But the most important thing I learned in the, in the cold chamber is that um, well, in Canada, you probably know this already, the, the secret advice why you always have to drink a lot and be mm-hmm. hydrated in winter for emergencies because um, you, I had to pee quite a lot on, the, on, my, on, my, on my bike to, to defreeze it. Yeah, and, um, and it's, as a Canadian, I, I can attest to the fact that when it's cold, you, you kind of forget to drink. I mean, even two weeks ago, I went for a 160K bike ride and it was cool out. And I think I drank three bottles in 160 kilometers. I was definitely dehydrated, but because I wasn't like actively sweating so much, I just forgot to drink. And, um, and I think somebody talked about it. Maybe it was one of your videos or maybe it was somebody else, but they're saying when you're, when you're drinking, it thins your blood and then your blood flows better. So your fingers and toes don't get as cold as fast. Whereas if you're not drinking, things are thicker and, uh, you freeze faster. Um, so it must have been a pretty, uh, a pretty stressful time because not only were you planning for a year this uh, this triathlon around the world, but then all of a sudden you have to have like contingency A, contingency B, worrying about like uh, how you're going to get visas and stuff. Was there a point in time where you thought this just might not happen? Yeah, I always believed you find a solution. And uh, so I never had this, this moment where I, I thought about giving up. Yeah. But um, that be, having said, um, bureaucracy was definitely, uh, in particular mentally, the most challenging part of, of my project because uh, swimming across the Adriatic Sea or cycling in snowstorms, this is, is very challenging, but it depends on me. If I fight too, mm-hmm, true. then I will make it. And if the borders are closed, then it's, I have limited control about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Super challenging to deal with it. Yeah, and you did a prior to starting. You did a shakedown ride. I, I guess we could call it a shakedown ride, a shakedown triathlon around Germany. Um, I mean, no small shakedown, but I think it's in the grand scheme of things is fairly small. How was that? And uh, tell us about it. Um, yes, yeah, so I did um, a triathlon around Germany, which uh, went always along the borders of of my home country. Um, it's sixteen times Ironman distance. So I first swam the length of Lake Constance. Okay. And uh, then I cycled always along the border, and then I, I ran the final 600 kilo- kilometers. And this was um, already with my raft and with bikepacking and with, with the luggage for the running, so it was very close to the, the original conditions I would, I would have. 
and that was for me the well the ultimate test, and especially in terms of the of the the swim packing. And um, the reality in the Adriatic Sea is still something very different because um, salt water and, uh, yeah. and and the Mediterranean is is a bit more challenging than the lake. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. Um, the swim. Uh, how? What was your gear that you used? I know you had a. I think Ortlieb made you specially your raft. Right? It was uh, designed by Ortlieb and. Can you tell us about that? Exactly. So Ortlieb is one of my my partners, and they um, well, swim packing is a very extremely niche um, spot. <laughs> so uh, there are not that many products out there. There are just a handful of people worldwide that do this. And um, Ortlieb they designed uh, for me a raft, which was basically a, a big uh, bag uh, and a rope and a, and a harness that I could put around my waist. And with this, I was pulling my raft. In there, there was very little space. So I had like one set of clothes, a sleeping bag, a mattress, uh, some electronics and and food and cosmetics. I didn't even have space for a tent. It just mm. wasn't there. And I cut my toothbrush in half to, to save weight. This is um, how minimalistic my approach uh, to this was. And I swam along the shore. And in the evening, I, I swam to a beach or to a rock, some rocks, and, and I slept there outside always. And every second day I swam into a harbor and uh, went out of the water and, and walked uh, to the next supermarket to go shopping and okay. then back into the water. So I, I could be around uh, seven, eight hours a day in the water. Okay. And how far would you swim typically in a day? I, I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, you know, there's definitely long days and short days, but uh, generally speaking. It's uh, very hard to say because on the running and the cycling, I always do pretty close, similar distance. And the swimming, um, it simply depends so much on the conditions, on the currents, on the wind direction, and so on. So I had, in the end, it took me 54 days um, for the 460 kilometers. There were also, I think, five days where I couldn't swim because of the um, there was a storm. Yeah. Uh, so on average, I, I swam roughly 10K per day. Um, on, the, on, the, on good conditions, usually 12, 13 kilometers. The longest day with a tailwind was 18 kilometers. And there were a few days where you swim 5K and, and uh, you're finished because it's okay. against the wind and the currents and the wave and you're just swallowing water all the time. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of open water swimming uh, when I lived in Malaysia and I definitely much prefer swimming in the ocean to uh, lakes personally. I find you just float and go a little bit faster, but uh, definitely sucked up a lot of water in my time. Um, how did you handle that? Did you have any gut issues or um, what was uh, what were the tricks that you found uh, worked and what didn't work? I actually completely agree with you. Um, the, the salt water destroys your skin and um, the waves and the currents are a bit stronger than the lake. So uh, I believe swimming in the sea is more challenging in that sense, but... As if I swim long distances, the most challenging part is mentally because swimming can be pretty, pretty boring. And um, in the in the sea, there is there are more changes. You can see uh, um, the water is clearer. You have uh, something is changing. If you swim in the lake, it's it's even more monotonous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from that perspective, it's much nicer in the sea, definitely. And yeah, for me the it's always in my mind I break it down to, to small distances and I always swim, ah, there's there's another little walk. I swim over there and I eat my chocolate bar and then I swim to the next one. <laughs> nice. 
I remember you talking about that on the bicycle, actually, when we talked about the uh, Pan America Challenge, and you said the same thing. You're like, yeah, man, it's all about the small distances. I'm like, okay, let's get to this little town. Let's get to the next Tim Hortons or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is there one day that stands out as the, the just that you swam that was the toughest day that was just, you know, just destroyed you? Yes, there was one actually where I was... When I arrived, I could I could barely walk when I, I reached the shore. This was, I think, 13 kilometers or 14 kilometers that day. And in the morning, it was uh, all right. And then I had a, a big crossing. It was like six kilometers of open sea. And they had uh, ferries crossing. Mm. So it's also mentally okay. a bit tough because this is actually dangerous. And I was... Uh, Halfway to the crossing, um, the wind and uh, changed, and the, um, the sea became pretty rough. And I was like, the final two hours, I was just swallowing water all the time and uh, pushing against the currents, and uh, reached the shore at, at sunset and uh, completely finished. And um, then at night, sleeping on some on some rocks and uh, raining all the time. So it's swim packing is a pretty miserable discipline, not only in the water but but also on shore because. You, the the big challenge is that when you are bike packing, um, you cover big distances. So when it gets dark, well, you cycle another ten k, and you will always, always find a good sleeping spot. On the bike, it happens very few times that I don't find a proper sleeping spot. Swim packing, you are very slow. So when it gets dark, um, you have another five hundred meters or one k yeah. to find a sleeping spot. And this is, there may not be a good one. Uh, that's simply how it is. So, so pretty often I, I had some very uncomfortable sleeping spots also. Yeah, which doesn't help much for the next day because then you wake up with like yes. kinks in your neck and your back and you're like, ah, oh, I got to get. But um, anyways, um, what was it like to reach the end? And uh, did Sean Conway ever message you and congratulate you? Yeah, reaching the end was fantastic because... Well, it's always good to reach um, the end of an adventure, but in that sense in particular, because swimming for me was the by way hardest thing and the most uncertain thing because I'm not a swimmer. Mm. And um, having finished this felt like, okay, now you have done the, the toughest part of the triathlon around the world. And it's also, I'm happy I've done it, but I'm also happy it's over. My <laughs> swimming career is done because there are just more interesting things to do. So, uh, yeah, I'm happy. I was fantastic to revive. And, uh, yeah, Sean is, um, as, as far as I know, there are probably a few more people who do swim packing in the world, but as far as I know, nobody that is famous or I have ever heard of. The only person I know, um, I know before who has done a longer swim packing journey, that was uh, Sean Conway from the mm. UK. And uh, he had also the record for the longest uh, swim packing journey um, with, I think, he swam 220K or something like that in England. And um, so, well, the, the competition isn't that big with only the two of us, but <laughs> uh, I contacted him, uh, him before and um, he uh, gave me some advice on the raft building and everything. And uh, we stood also in contact throughout the, the swimming project. And uh, Sean is a really great guy. I, I remember... Uh, when I asked, uh, I told him, Sean, I, I would like to do swim packing. How, what do you think uh, about it and everything? And he said, well, this is fantastic. Uh, you will love it. Do this and this. 
And then I, I was the first day in the, in the, in the equation on the shore and was swimming. In the evening, I got a WhatsApp from Sean and he said like, and Jonas, swim packing really sucks, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just to make you feel good about it all, huh? <laughs> yeah, but, but he, no, it was perfect because he's the same, has the same mindset as me. And he know the moment I, I had committed to it and started, I'm not giving up. Yeah, exactly. So when he tells me, and uh, if he would have told me before swim packing sucks, um, I, then that would be very bad. But when I'm already in the water and he tells me this, it's just funny. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Before continuing on with the show, I'd like to thank Panorama Cycles for sponsoring this podcast. Panorama Cycles is a bicycle manufacturer in Quebec, Canada, dedicated to backcountry cyclists that prefer gravel, snow, and off-road trails. They believe cycling is a catalyst for adventures of all sizes, and that there's no need to travel across the world or to be a seasoned athlete to live epic outdoor adventures. Over the past year, I've been riding the Chickshocks fat bike, the Canadian gravel bike, and the Taiga mountain bike. From everyday rides, bikepacking trips, and a multitude of races and events, these bikes have put a huge smile on my face every step of the way, while also getting me on the podium on the Wendigo Ultra Fat Bike Race and helped me set an FKT on the Canadian Shield 400. In partnering up with the Bikepack Adventures podcast, Panorama Cycles also wants to give back to the cycling community, particularly you, the listeners of the podcast. By using the promo code BPA10 when purchasing a new bike from PanoramaCycles.com, you'll save 10%. For more information on their environmental commitments or to check out their bikes, head to panoramacycles.com. Now back to the show. So reaching Dubrovnik, you finished the swim and uh, it was time to get on your, your wife, Esposa, um, and uh, start the, the bike leg. Tell us about that. Tell us about your packing, your bike. Um, I know you had a new sponsor for this, I think, right? That was a different than the Cape to Cape? Yes, I uh, well, it was also a curved titanium oh, bike, curved. but uh, but a gravel bike, and um, I changed my gear a bit depending on where I was in in Europe. I had a little bit less, so I I do have the classic three Ortley bags, um, a handlebar bag, a frame bag, and a seat pack where I put in my stuff. And I'm also here very minimalistic and really cut it down to the the minimum. Um, this changed, of course, when I, I reached Russia. Um, so now I always needed a backpack and um, some, yeah, even like a sleeping bag for, for those temperatures is mm -hmm. quite big. Um, and a down jacket and everything, and this snow goggles and, and everything what you what you need in winter. So yeah, my gear changed definitely. So did the uh, the backpack was just housing the the big bulky stuff, right? Like the sleeping yes. bag, jacket, pants, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Nothing heavy. Uh, it's just um, the sleeping bag for winter is is it's too big. Bulky. Um, yeah. yeah, it's bulky. Yeah, yeah, nice. But anyways, after the swim, you had so much more stuff. <laughs> you finally had to have kid again. A full toothbrush, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it, exactly, exactly. I didn't cut the toothbrush for the for the cycling leg. This is pro proper luxury. Yeah, and you were using the Curve uh, G. The Kevin of Steel, or Kevin of Steel, yeah. Titanium, right? Uh, yes, the Kevin, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Kevin. Kevin. Nice. All right. And, um, yeah, what was your plan for leaving the bike? Uh, so I guess, like you said, originally you had the plan of staying to the south, but then you had the contingency to go north. But I know you were in uh, Turkey, and things were still uncertain, right? Yes, so um, I started my project during between the first and the second wave of covid so at that point, I had different scenarios, but no one know how long this is going to, to take, if the borders will be open or not. Mm. I simply didn't know. 
And uh, I started in the hope it will be open, but I did have different scenarios in my mind, of course. And while I was swimming, the second wave was there and the borders were closed. And uh, when I reached Turkey, it became clear that all the borders east of Turkey are closed. So I, I decided the only option is Russia, because this is just one big country. I went to the Russian consulate in Istanbul, and they, well, they didn't give me my visa. But then I, I contacted everyone who has anything to do with it. And uh, after seven weeks of waiting in Turkey, I got a, a sports visa from the Olympic Committee ah. and also a special permit to, to cross the land border from Ukraine because the, the land border was um, officially closed. Only truck, truck drivers could cross, us, cross okay. it. And uh, well, then I cycled uh, back uh, into Bulgaria and uh, Romania, Moldova, Ukraine. And uh, when my passport finally arrived, I have two passports, and one came Very with my lucky. visa, then I, I could cross the border. Yeah, you're super fortunate <laughs> to have the two passports. You could keep traveling without uh, uh, the other one, right? Yes, it's a big advice. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I believe we have some travelers here also in the podcast. Um, I don't know how this is for Canadians or, or Americans, but uh, at least this is how it works for Germans. And I believe it could be similar for you. Um, if you tell your government um, that you travel to Israel and then afterwards to Sudan or to Iran, they will give you two passports in Germany because uh, you cannot do this. The, 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 the Iranians or the Sudanese, they will not let you in if you have been in Israel. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, for that reason, the German government handed me a second passport. Oh, I okay, I thought you actually had two different nationality passports. I didn't realize that oh. all this time you had two passports because of that. Yes, I have two German passports. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah I'm going to have to look and, into that because definitely my wife is Persian, so I have been to Iran a few times, and uh, so I just have to go and tell the Canadian government, I want to go to Israel, but, you know, I need second passport. It only works if you go to Israel and then you go back to, to, to Iran. Israel will let you in, but Iran uh, won't let you in if you've been in Israel. Right. Well, that's what I'll say. And then I'm going to Israel. Yeah, perfect. No, I didn't you know about this. Tell them you go to Israel and then afterwards you want to go back to, to Iran. And, yeah, yeah. And you have passport. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Okay. And uh, it's awesome for, for visa applications because you can apply for many at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's cool. And that's how you did uh, previously when you did Cape to Cape. You that was the same exactly. thing because of because of that you had the two passports, right? Exactly. And, and another thing is also um, I have been in in quite a lot of um, countries that are not that well known, uh, well well seen internationally. Um, well, Iran would be one of them. And um, so I have a, a dirty passport and a good passport. Um, this is especially important for U.S. immigrations if you yeah. don't want to have bad questions. <laughs> That's wild. And I don't, I, I mean, I know it was so, it must have been so stressful. At one point you were cycling around Turkey and you were even on your Instagram, you were saying, all right, I might cycle to the Atlantic Ocean and cross by boat if I can find a ride because not sure what's going on, right? Uh, yes, I was having all scenarios in my mind and just looking for a solution. And going the other direction was also a last option. It must have been kind of peaceful just to get on your bike and ride and not like think yes. about that stuff during the day. Just like I'll focus on it tonight when things <laughs> when I'm done riding. Um, yeah, so I mean that's huge challenges. Um, what kind of daily distance? You said it, it was pretty standard on the bike. You know, you what you ride tend to ride every day. Uh, what kind of daily distances were you covering on the bike? And uh, what was the longest day, coldest day, 
that kind of thing. So, so this time it wasn't as stable as it was used to be, simply because of um, of Russian winter conditions. Yeah. Um, you notice in Canada there are simply some days where 200k maybe might be a bit uh, too much <laughs> when you are in a snowstorm. And um, I had I averaged around um, 200k on the cycling leg. Oh, okay. So there were some days, especially in Russia, where it was rather 140 or something like that. But uh, most days were definitely more. And on the long days, around 230k. Uh, the, um, uh, this wasn't a speed record as on my, my past adventure. Yeah, exactly. Okay, by I averaged 250k with some 320 days, but this wasn't the focus this time. And uh, the coldest temperature I had um, due to the, the delays, I was a bit late in, in the Russian Siberian winter. I was only there in March, and I had around minus 20 Celsius as the coldest days. Oh, okay. So maybe that was uh, for the best, uh, <laughs> the delay. Um, well, I'm not sure, actually. I, I was looking forward to the winter, and mm. to, be, to be honest... Um, in Russia, I believe the, the spring is worse than the, than the winter because of the humidity. Mm -hmm. the humidity. Uh, for me, the, the cold days at minus 20, this is not that bad because you have proper clothes and there is no humidity. It's very dry. Uh, as long as you don't sweat, this is fine. The, the worst for me was where it's like minus 2, minus 3, and everything is wet and snowy rain, and then you go to the tent and it drops down at minus 15 at night. This is where... Um, the combination of cold and, and humid is pretty bad. Yeah, and I guess the same can be said with the roads, right? Because when you're right in that yes. temperature range, it gets really muddy. And I, I, yeah. I'm not sure exactly where. I think it's, I guess, the biggest part of Siberia just becomes really muddy, really messy. Yeah? Yes, yes. It's um, in, in spring, this is it's horrible. You're just stuck in the mud, basically. Was it a bit of a mind game to like deal with it? Or are you just you've experienced it before, so you kind of knew what to expect? Uh, no, no, I, I didn't experience no. that before. Of course, I cycled sometimes in winter, but uh, Germany is something uh, is a bit easier than than Siberia in that sense. <laughs> and um, but it is a mind game. It's simply um, um, staying optimistic and having small targets. So if if you cross Siberia and it's it's horrible, I always believe that tomorrow will be better. Mm -hmm. And you've said that I, I know you've said in previously that like Russia, it's a pretty dangerous place to ride a bike. Um, you have to pick your routes carefully. What did you do to make this a little safer as you were going through? Um, yes, I I cycled twice before going across Russia, and it's in my opinion the the most dangerous place on earth for cycling. Because um, Russian people are nice, but um, the roads are simply not made for cyclists. They are they are very very narrow with um, a lot of trucks and no space for cyclists. And the truck drivers they are simply not used to cyclists, so they they don't know how it, if that it is very dangerous if they overtake you with half a meter of distance. Mm -hmm. So it is super yeah. dangerous. And um, what I did was especially um, in Russia, the western part is where all the, um, the people live, where you have the heavy traffic. The further east you get, the more remote Russia becomes. And um, I mean, in the far east, there are, there are barely any people, so um, also less traffic. And in the, in the western part, the most dangerous, I went on very small roads. Okay. So I sometimes had to zigzag a bit to avoid the highways. And that's when I, I got into a lot of gravel and then I got stuck in the mud. Aha, uh -huh, that's why. Okay. 
Um, on the Trans Siberian Highway later on, there is Nomad. This is a paved road. Yeah, but, that's good. Yeah. Awesome. Good to know. Uh, you, We all know that like Russians, they tend to, to have this gloomy look about them, but they can be quite hospitable, especially once you get to know them. And I think you came across people that you had previously met over the years. Um, but did you get hosted by a lot of people? Were people really helpful? Like, Tell us a bit about your experience going through uh, through Russia. Yeah, I mean, I, I was in a hundred countries, and I had I met hospitable people everywhere in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, also in Russia. So um, I got yeah, I camped most of the nights. But um, when I was cold and someone, I got sometimes hosted by people, and they gave me food and everything. So super super nice. And uh, there were also two occasions where I I I met people I had met before during 2017 when I cycled across Russia. Um, at one point. Uh, in Krasno, close to Krasnoyarsk, which is like uh, in the middle of Siberia, I um, I, I saw I, I found a restaurant again where I I, I slept um, four years ago and and I got, went in and the owner recognized me and said Ah, oh, Jonas, you are back and um, <laughs> he invited me again. So super nice. That's really cool. Um, about your your setup, did you use Dynamo lights or you use just uh, rechargeable lights? Uh, rechargeable. I, I carry um, a big power bank and I didn't have a stove with me. So I always eat in restaurants. Okay. And in restaurants, I have a supercharger. In restaurants, I charge everything. Okay. And with this, I'm I'm fine. So I simply don't need a dynamo. And what about aero bars? I, didn't, I noticed there's no aero bars on your bike. Why didn't you throw some on? I mean, it's just another comfort position. I'd love to hear your opinion. Uh, that's true. I, I get this question all the time, and in, in general, I'm a big fan of aero bars. I always had it on my past adventures, but this time, first of all, it wasn't a speed record. Mm-hmm. Um, but the aero bars you not only use for for aerodynamics, but also for comfort, of course. Yeah. Um, but this time, my route it wasn't simply wasn't necessary because I took a route that was as since it wasn't a speed record, I took a very nice route, which, which means. A lot of mountains, a lot of well, some gravel sections um, in the European part in particular, and in Russia it was winter with uh, with mm. a big down jacket and a backpack and everything. So it simply wasn't conditions for our bus. Fair enough, thank you. And well, um, yeah. did you take rest days throughout the bike portion, or once you kind of, uh, I mean, aside from when you're waiting for your passport and stuff, or did you just ride every day? What was it like? Mm. I took on the entire 14 months. So in all the three disciplines, I never took a rest day. Um, there were, of course, in the swimming leg, there were a few days where I couldn't go into the water because yeah. of the storm. On the cycling leg, I had to wait twice, once in, in Turkey and then another time in Ukraine for my for my passport or for, for a visa. Otherwise, I, I cycled every day. And the running, I, I, I won the 120 marathons um, in 117 days, no rest days. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, even the days where you were sitting around waiting for your passport, you were out running, swimming, biking with people, and you're kind of kept keeping busy. Of of course, it's. Um, I'm not the guy who who, who just sits around and, and waits for something. I I simply get bored. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. So that takes us on to uh, are you you reaching Vladivostok? Of course, I'm sure that felt good. Uh, although probably a little bit of stress-induced uh, anxiety as well, just because of uh, not sure what's going on. You couldn't get into Canada, couldn't get in the USA. Um, ultimately, making the decision to run across Mexico, um, knowing that wasn't your first choice, probably because of the heat, 
But uh, watch, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so my first choice was the US, my second choice Canada, but both didn't let me in. And sometimes uh, fantastic things can happen out of bad luck because Mexico was just incredible. And uh, I went from Tijuana to Cancun, but not on the direct route. I, I went a bit of zigzag, also first down the Baja California Peninsula and then over to the mainland to Sinaloa, up the Sierra Madre through Mexico City, and then with a little extra loop across Oaxaca and Chiapas towards uh, Cancun in total 5,000 kilometers. And yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. Okay. And that's the end, everybody. <laughs> um, so what did you carry with you while you're running? I think you were using a, I'm not sure the name of the brand, the brand of a uh, jogging, was it Kid a, a Jogger? Kid Runner. Kid Runner. Yeah. Kid Runner is a running trailer that you uh, usually uh, can use for running with your children, with small children. And uh, I use it for running with my gear. So in there I had um, this time well, a bit more things. So I, I did have an ultralight tent and yeah. sleeping bag and mattress. I had two sets of clothes and um, always three pair of shoes. So I, I oh. changed the shoes every day. And they, I run in total. Um, I needed 11 pair of shoes to run across Mexico. So I had three pairs and then all 1,500 kilometers, I, I had a package with three more shoes waiting for me. Ah, okay. And apart from that also, yeah, sun protection, a bit of electrolytes because of the heat and uh, cosmetics, uh, power bank, the usual stuff. stuff. Yeah. And um, so you, I guess the idea of alternating shoes every, reusing a pair of shoes only every three days, is that just so that the the pair has like two days to just really freshen up and does it help preserve the shoe or what's the reasoning for that? Um, the reasoning is that well, I had the same model, but even if the same model, there will be a, at least if my pair of shoes, there yeah. is a very, very small difference in terms of fitting. Okay. Even if it's the same size. And that's why I changed every day so that I simply have, not the same pressure points. Oh, okay. That makes, yeah, that's a good point. Good reason. Um, let me see here. Yeah, I was going to, my, my next question was to say, to ask, you know, like triathlons, the run really makes or breaks your triathlon, you know, like the swim, you don't have to be the strongest swimmer to have a good triathlon, but it really comes down to the run when you're looking at a, a an elite level triathlon. Did you find that, the run really was going to make or break your event here? Um, for me, that was the swimming. Yeah. Because um, well, um, the, the, the traditional triathlon 3.8K of swimming is just not very far. Everyone makes it. And uh, you may, may lose 10 minutes, but that doesn't break um, yeah. your time. Um, the, the marathon is for the usual triathlon, the make or break discipline, definitely. For me... Swimming was the most challenging one because I'm I wasn't a swimmer. Um, mm. The running was definitely um, the second hardest thing, uh, and also a bit unpredictable in the sense that running has a, a very different impact on the body than cycling. Yeah. Cycling, yeah. you don't destroy anything. Cycling, you can do unlimited basically all the time for for months and it doesn't harm your body. Um, but running, um, you have to be very careful with injuries. So this is a bit to make or break discipline mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, so, and, and your daily goal was a marathon a day and you, but you did finish, I think three days early. So I guess you, you had some bigger days. Um, 
what was it like starting the marathon? I imagine your body just kind of got used to things. It just takes a few days. Um, but those initial days, I kind of imagine they were pretty tough or how were they? Yes. So a marathon is from the, from the endurance perspective, a marathon is, is not very difficult. Um, compared to what I do otherwise, but it is different muscles. And I haven't run for seven months because I was cycling and swimming. Yeah. So when I set off for my first marathon, um, I was in the evening, I could barely walk anymore. And this the next day I was hinking. So for me, the first, the first marathons, it was hell. I could, I could barely walk. And um, the interesting thing is that after around a week, it started to get better. So my body adapted. Um, you can actually recover running a marathon a day. And after around three weeks, I was completely pain-free. Oh, yeah. No kidding, huh? So the, the body adapted. I had after around 50 days, I had three days of pain in my ankle. And I did a recovery day with only 35K. And the pain was gone and never returned. And in the end, I was running sometimes 65K a day. So um, if you ask me when I felt fresher and more recovered and stronger, if that was after two marathons or after 120, the answer is definitely after 120, I felt way stronger, way better recovered and everything than after two marathons. Okay, good to know. And have you been running uh, a lot since? Um, yes, so currently... Uh, my life changed a lot because this, uh, especially after Mexico, this, the, the story also became national news in Germany. So now I'm super busy here with um, well, marketing the adventure kind of. Uh, I wrote a best-selling book and um, the film is currently in the cinemas and I do a lot of speeches also with companies. And um, since I'm traveling by train uh, at the moment, I always have my running shoes with me. Okay. Um, so at the moment, I'm, I am, unfortunately, logistically wise, it's a bit challenging to cycle as much as I, I would like to, but I, I run every day. So I, I still do run around um, 100K, K a week at the moment. Okay. Running from one conference to another. <laughs> yeah. uh, what were the Mexican people like? I mean, I think that would probably be the, the most amazing part of the run. You know, America's beautiful, Canada's beautiful, but I think, well, Mexico's also beautiful. And I think the people are much friendlier in my estimation in the sense that they're going to come out of their way to to greet you and where Canadians might just you know they'll talk to you if you're right there beside them but they're not going to go too far out of their way yeah the, the Mexicans they were just incredible um they were so friendly and hospitable and always funny and um something very strange happened in Mexico when I I said off in Tijuana I had, I think, around 300 Mexican followers, so I was basically unknown, and I ran alone across the desert. But then it started first locally to become a story, and then in the in the Sierra Madre, a dog, La Coqueta, joined, uh, running for 130 oh, I remember that, yeah. And um, then I looked for someone who adopts her, and she got adopted, and she became got like a big hero's welcome from the mayor. With her. She got a medal, and she made it into 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 the into TV became Mexico's most famous dog and uh, the day after afterwards I was national news as uh, the German <laughs> Forrest Gump and then the Mexicans they they just got crazy and um, the people like they came from all over Mexico to join running 
And I sometimes had like hundreds, uh, more than a hundred people that, that run after me. And they were like always doing parties. So they were singing and dancing and, and, and celebrating and everything. And I got my own police escorts, sometimes not only one car, the Mexicans, they like to overdo things a bit. So I had like five cars behind me and, and the police joined running two with their weapons in their hands. And in every village, I got a big cele celebration and reception from the mayor from the governor, from the drug cartels, um, everyone who has something to say. And, um, yeah, it became a big uh, community run. It must have made it just, like, exciting to get up the next day and run again and see, like, what kind of thing is going to happen today. Exactly. And this is um, the marathon running in the end, it was super easy because um, – there were so many exciting things happening every day that I just forgot about um, the pain and everything. That's amazing. And uh, did you have any injuries throughout the run or things just kind of stayed more or less okay? Um, just as in the one in the, in the beginning with my muscles a bit, the adopting phase, and then uh, three days of ankle pain and that's it. Otherwise, uh, no injuries. Okay. And uh, so after you finished the run, you flew to Portugal and you got back on your bike. Did you kind of miss the uh, miss all the media and the people? And <laughs> you're all like, where am I? I'm, I'm alone again. Uh, to be honest, not. Um, it's in Mexico. I would say um, the past, the last 70 days, it was crazy. With, uh, it was sometimes live in, on TV, my run. And I had people every day, interviews wow. every day. And this is, of course, very motivating and exciting. Time but uh, to be like a, a proper um, famous person um, can also be super, super tiring. And in the end, um, the people waited in front of my hotel and uh, they came to the restaurant and, and everywhere. I, I had zero private space, zero. There were people all the time. Wow. And this is nice for, for a few weeks, but not permanently. So in, in, in Portugal and Spain... Um, I was basically on my own and, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I mean, it just gives you a sense of what a famous person in like Los Angeles goes through when there's paparazzi around all the time, yeah, like how tiring it must be for them. And Exactly. It's, it's, um, this is how in Mexico I'm, I'm as famous as, a, as an ice hockey player in, in Canada. So, um, and uh, to be honest, this is, is, is a very nice experience, but if yeah. you have this long term, it's just not nice if you're recognized everywhere. Are you going to publish your book in Spanish? So uh, you'll be oh, yeah. the top seller in Mexico for sure. Yeah, the book and the film are also coming out in, in, in Mexico. Oh, that's amazing. All right. Um, your route heading back to Munich, uh, Portugal, Spain, and then what was your kind of general route? Yeah, so I, I had another 4,000K left. Uh, so that's, I didn't take the direct the fastest route to Germany because I needed, um, well, I want to do 4,000K, so the, the multiply of the Ironman distance mm -hmm. works. And I cycled along uh, southern Portugal, then southern Spain um, to France, uh, southern France. I made a little extra loop up Mauron too, um, the famous mountain, and from there into Switzerland and uh, back to Munich, where I arrived in November last year. Ah, did you stop at your parents' house on the way through Switzerland and say hi? Of course. Yeah. Of course. That was nice. First uh, time after yeah, more than 14 months that I haven't been there. Uh, let me ask you, I, I'm going to know the answer to this question, but did, were things, were, were there any points where things were so tough that you thought about giving up or, uh, and, and, um, maybe just mentally tough and what did you do to get over, get through these difficult moments? I never had the, the thought of going up. 
no. it just wasn't an option. There you go. Okay. That's what I kind of figured. Um, so yeah, finishing. How was that? What was the moment like? I mean, now it's not just finishing one event, but the grand finish, you know? Yeah, well, it's it's amazing to arrive and um, have it done because finishing is always the goal and uh, seeing family and friends again. And um, but I still have to say, it's for me, it's not like a like a, a soccer or an ice hockey player who scores a goal or, mm-hmm. or wins the game because I already know months ago that I will make it. So for me, yeah. the moment of arriving is more like a um, well, it's a feeling of accomplishment. I have reached it and everything, but it's it's. Um, I know for a long time I, I will make it. And um, after finishing, I also very quickly look forward to the next target because yeah. um, if you have done something, project like this, which was my life for, well, not only 14 months, but with preparation, two years where I didn't do anything else but this project. Yeah. And now it's gone. So, so what do you do? Should I cycle about my house now? Yeah, um, you're like, what will I do this, tomorrow? <laughs> it seems very exciting, exactly. Um, so I always have a new project in mind before I finish. And um, for me, I will start again in the, in the end of next year for another trip around the world, but in a new, um, at least as challenging way as the last one. And no one has ever done it before. So, and it's top secret. Yeah, I, I knew you wouldn't tell us anything. So around the world is the biggest hint we're going to get, right? Exactly. And that will be starting the end of 2023? Yes. Okay. And then in the meantime, now you're just working on the documentaries, the um, uh, speakings at companies, corporate events, things like that? Yes, and some small adventures. I will be back in Mexico and in Ireland and in the Alps for, for some, some smaller trips. Oh, nice. Okay, so last question before we go, because... Uh, you know, I don't have to keep you here forever. We've had a few podcasts together, but if you had to choose one, what would it be? Strong waves while swimming, muddy Siberian roads, or the Baja sun while running? Definitely the Baja sun when, when running. Baja was, was sometimes challenging, but I, I loved it. Running in the desert is amazing. Yeah. And I think you had an El, Mar- El Mariachi feeling. band playing for you at one point. Too, yes, huh? yes, they do. They do. <laughs> And for me, running running alone in the desert is, is freedom. I just love it. Ah, okay. I'll have to try it. All right. Well, Jonas, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man, and uh, it's late for me and early for you, so you probably have a run to go for it, and I'm uh, going to go to bed. So uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much for giving me your time again. I know it's uh, I know you're busy. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, big pleasure, and sleep well. All right. You don't have to hang up, but I will say bye, and uh, thank you. Keep on pedaling. Thank you once again, Jonas, for taking the time to be on the podcast. For those of you that want to know more about him, as I mentioned before, you can listen to episodes 28 and 38 of the Bike to Adventures podcast and uh, kind of find out all about his background and what he is, who he is, what he does. And uh, all in all, keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me to keep going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have comments or questions, you can email me at chris at biketoadventures.com or go to the website biketoadventures.com and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, and the touring tips page. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you're enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash biketoadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. 
You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, helping me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and continue to produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on peddling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling.